zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing SOB, released July 1st, 1981. It was written and directed by Blake Edwards and released by Paramount Pictures. The basic plot of the film is based on the experiences of writer-director Blake Edwards, and his wife Julie Andrews, a decade earlier, making a film called Darling Lily, which was intended to show Andrews' sexy side and break her out of her family-friendly typecasting. It went way over budget, was subjected to studio interference, and despite some Oscar nominations, its release was fumbled and it failed to pay for itself in the box office. When Edwards found the same studio trouble on a string of films, he was unofficially blacklisted from work and moved to Europe where he found success with a string of Pink Panther films. SOB was originally set to release in 1976, but was unexpectedly put in turnaround. At one point, Cloris Leachman and Michael Callan were listed among the cast, and Joel Grey turned a role down, which I would assume was the Felix Farmer part. Mm. Lorimar agreed to distribute, but canceled a deal with United Artists in favor of Paramount, who Edwards was already at odds with. His clashes with the studio were escalated by Edwards' demand for a glitzy press junket, which were shut down by the studio last minute blaming the air traffic controller strike. Edwards called this excuse bullshit, quite publicly, and Paramount basically said, yeah, it was bullshit, fuck off. Like, <laughs> they admitted right up front, yeah, that's not really why we canceled it, but we didn't, we didn't want to have this argument in public, and apparently he does. Edwards paid for the planned junket out of pocket himself, as well as a seven-city press tour for the full major cast. In the end, the film's release was a flop, and in keeping with Darling Lily's reputation, the film collected Razzie nominations for Worst Director and Screenplay. Why well, It just feels like lazy and meandering to just make a movie of like... About your experience your making experience. another movie? Yeah. yeah. And not to say that every movie about a real life experience is that, but like, I don't think you picked the best parts right, to yeah. focus on. <laughs> in the television cut of the film, not only is all the nudity removed but the scene of Robert Vaughn in ladies' undergarments was replaced with him just being naked but cropped carefully. Okay. <laughs> so they couldn't even show a man in women's undergarments on television. What? So did they have an alternate cut? Apparently, yeah. yeah. They just shot the scene again with him. Huh. The film starts on a huge empty Toyland castle set. A gate is guarded by full-size tin soldiers with big fuzzy red mustaches plastered on their faces. And suddenly, Julie Andrews appears as Sally Miles in a straw hat and suspenders, whistling a bit of Polly Wally Doodle All Day as she moves through the castle gate between the soldiers. Oh yeah? What well, sounds Polly Wally crappy? <laughs> the soldiers start dancing to the song just as Sally gets into the lyrics. She moves to another part of the soundstage where an enormous jack-in-the-box springs to life. Then we see an Easter Bunny packing a cannon with confetti and blasting it across the stage. She wanders over a teeter-totter loaded with quarreling clowns and then harmonizes with some fairy-looking creatures. She climbs into what looks like an enormous music box gazebo with three ballerinas dancing to the music as if animatronic. Lastly, she makes a quick visit to a corner loaded with teddy bears and letter blocks and then runs across the full stage to revisit everyone, finishing at the castle gate. We dip to black from this number 
and come back up on a beach in Malibu and we get an opening crawl. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't even on purpose. (laughs) Once upon a time, in a wonderful land called Hollywood, there lived a very successful motion picture producer named Felix Farmer. He owned three beautiful houses, had two lovely children, and he was married to a gorgeous movie star. The people who ran the studio where he worked loved and admired him because he'd never made a movie that had lost money. Then one day, he produced the biggest, most expensive motion picture of his career, and it flopped. The people who ran the studio were very angry at Felix because they lost millions of dollars. And Felix lost his mind. A man walks his dog along the beach but suddenly stops to clutch at his chest and then dies of a heart attack at the edge of the water. On a nearby beachfront patio, we see film producer... I suppose before we go too far... He starts to crawl across the sand, yes. which yeah. was the joke there. That was there. the opening crawl <laughs> that she laughed at. On a nearby beachfront patio, we see film producer Felix Farmer having a panic attack and staring down a variety headline. Nightwind pulls lowest gross in history. And a smaller headline, NY critics break wind. I tried to read the articles on this cover, and the words aren't just arbitrary placeholder nonsense this time. They're actual film and stage reviews, but with fabricated actor names. Oh. So someone actually did a nice job with this prop, or Variety has like a standard prop template that they use. The entire beach house was built especially for the film, and some unexpected rains delayed the production a bit. But this, this whole house was built exclusively for the film because Why? they shoot out of the windows at the water a lot. And there wasn't a house in Malibu that they could shoot these shots with don't think any of that was necessary i think i think someone just wanted to get a beach house out of this film <laughs> well they didn't keep it afterward <laughs> well somebody did they didn't just tear down a house well they probably, yes they did they probably it wasn't built it, in a residential it, zone they probably didn't build it to like actual Codes? house yeah. specs they built it clearly to it's falling apart yeah, there's a hole in the ceiling in this one room <laughs> an adult man approaches to retrieve a ball for john john felix's son it has rolled under felix's chair here But Felix doesn't even react to the guy. In the house, we see Sally Miles coming down the stairs and dabbing at her eyes with a handkerchief. She spots Felix on the patio and tells him that she and the kids are leaving, following the instructions of a doctor she consulted. I talked with Dr. Alfassa and she said she doesn't think he should see the children for a while, especially John John, till they get used to the idea. Which I assume means that she's asked for a separation and presumably custody of the kids. Again, Felix doesn't respond, and she turns to go, but not before telling him that she's leaving the Cadillac behind. In the house, the chef and butler are arguing when the phone rings. It's Dick Benson, played by Larry Hagman, and all he can hear is the argument before hanging up. On Benson's side of the call, we see him hang up, and then dial another number as a woman enters the room. He says he's calling her father, Harry Sandler, Felix's agent. He demands Felix's presence at an 11 o'clock meeting at David Blackman's office. Benson says Felix and Harry will both be fired if this meeting doesn't happen, and then offers a message from Harry's daughter. You tell him 11 o'clock, or it's his ass, and your ass too, Harry. Got it? it. Uh, Joyce sends her best. I feel like there's already too many characters. Right. Yeah. And And we don't know who any of them are yet. Right, and we're about to get like half a dozen more. Yeah. We cut back to the deck of the beach house where Felix rises with a stack of varieties. Richard Mulligan playing Felix here kind of looks like an older Elia Baskin mixed with maybe like early 1980s Donald Moffat. I feel like Moffat might have been the first choice for this role, Mm. just based on the eyebrows. The dying man on the beach is still clawing at the sand as his dog whimpers. Inside, Harry Sandler calls, but the butler can't talk Felix to the phone. Outside, Sally pulls away with the kids, dog, butler, and chef in her car, 
while Felix stumbles to the garage. He climbs into their other car, license plate Felix, starts it up, closes the garage door, and slumps into the back seat as the garage fills with exhaust. On a TV in the car, he watches an entertainment report about the dreadful response to the limited release of Felix's new movie, Nightwind. And in spite of a mammoth advertising campaign, in the first week has grossed less money than any film in the history of Capitol Studios. I have it on good authority that Capitol's president, David Blackman, is considering calling in all the prints. We are intercutting the report with a car pulling into the Capitol Studios lot. It looks like the CBS Radford gate. Did it look like that to you? Because I don't think it's a regular studio lot. And it looked like it had that big parking structure that's just north of the gate. Did that exist in 1980? I mean, I think there was a lot there. I don't know if it was Or (laughs) 76, whenever this was shot. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was shot in 80. Oh, okay. It wasn't shot. So when it was in turnaround, it hadn't started. Yeah. Okay. Capitol Studios, by the way, is also the name of the studio in the Coen Brothers film, Hail Caesar. Do you guys recall the last time we discussed a movie performing so poorly that the studio literally retracted it from theaters? We're talking about fictionally? No. Oh. Uh, Heaven's Gate? Yeah. I can't okay. think of anything else that's <laughs> I was going to say, like, just, was, wasn't there stuff about films and just tell me what you want when they were buying the studio? And they yeah, they had them. studios and they were, like, yeah. selling the library and stuff like that. But uh, I'm pretty sure that this is a specific reference to Heaven's Gate, the fact that they're talking about pulling all the... Uh, all the footage back Mm -hmm. and recutting the film. We cut into the office of Mr. Blackman as played by Robert Vaughn where they're discussing their options. The studio's attorneys advise Blackman that Felix could sue if they edit the film without his permission. They have notes prepared for changes to make. Someone suggests bringing in the director, but Blackman doesn't think that Cully will care because he has a six picture pay or play deal with the studio so they can't fire him. Turns out there are credible rumors that JG, the studio head, might sell the entire studio which would void Cully's contract, so he's here to meet with them. By the way, Radford Studio opened in 1928. Oh, really? I can't believe how old that location is. I'm pretty is. sure that's where they were shooting. It's, it's yeah, I'm just, I'm just surprised it's been around that long. Yeah. Blackman gives the editorial notes to director Cully to present to producer Felix. Blackman orders a public announcement that they are recalling the film. When his office empties, Blackman calls his mistress or girlfriend at home. I don't, we don't get an indication if he's married or not but uh, maybe just a girlfriend. Apparently, she's been pitching an actor named Sam Marshall to play opposite her in an upcoming project, and he's calling to say that Marshall seems right for the part. On her side of the call, she's lying in bed undressed, and we get the impression that she is not alone. When she hangs up, we see that she's here with Sam Marshall, and she informs him that he might have that part. We cut to Cully driving up PCH in a convertible and picking up two lady hitchhikers. (laughs) More characters. Yay! (laughs) They don't seem to have a destination in mind, and so just ride with him to wherever he's going. In this case, he's headed to Felix Farmer's Beach House. We cut to a second home of actress Sally Miles, just as her representation are arriving. One of them, her press agent named Ben Coogan, as played by Robert Weber, snaps at her butler on his way in, and the butler whips the man's hat off his head aggressively. Coogan almost starts a fight until he realizes that that's part of what butlers do. In Sally's den, she is shouted at by three people. Press agent Coogan... Her attorney, Herb Maskowitz, played by Robert Loja, and her agent, Ava Brown, played by Shelley Winters. This, again, too many people. There, there, so many. We just mm-hmm. need one agent. You don't need to have a press agent, a film screen agent, and a lawyer in this scene. Especially because Loja basically does nothing. the entire movie. Yeah. I, I mean, like, most of these roles could have been accomplished with one person when you had three. And if you needed three, how did you talk Loja into this part? Right. Where he has four lines, maybe. Turns out they're not even worried about the movie. 
They're upset that she's planning to divorce Felix because of how it will affect her image. They make multiple references to her having played Peter Pan sometime in the past, and it seems to be a stand-in for Julie Andrews' Mary Poppins role. If she gets divorced, her fans will turn on her. Her attorney doesn't see the problem. Not even a legal separation? Absolutely not! Shit, no! Back at Felix's place, the gardener is showing up for the day. He steps into the garage to collect a lawnmower and chokes a bit on the fumes that Felix was trying to kill himself with. We see him wake up in the back seat of the car. We cut to the beach outside the farmer estate and it's now crowded with sunbathers who apparently still haven't noticed the body of the dead man. Cully pulls up to the house with his two stranger passengers and calls through the open door but nobody responds. When the gardener goes to return the lawnmower to the garage, he finally realizes that the car was left running in here. The exhaust fumes have killed a small rat and he carries it out of the garage. He shows it to the girls waiting in Cully's car and they start screaming and run into the house. On the third trip to the car, the gardener notices Felix in the back seat. Conscious, but depressed looking. It's not such a good idea to sit in here with the motor running. I better turn on the ignition. As he reaches through the window for the keys, he accidentally puts the car in drive, and it crashes through the other side of the garage, and down the beach, into the waves. A group of surfers swim out to collect Felix from the back seat of the car. Back at Sally's home, her butler informs her that Felix just tried to kill himself. Sally is shocked, and sits at a piano under a huge portrait of herself in the Peter Pan costume. Back on the beach, a tow truck is reeling in a huge catch in the form of Felix's car. A pair of cops are leaving the scene after taking a statement from Mr. Cully, who asks them to keep this information out of the press. Again, the police have come, a tow truck has come, nobody has noticed the dead body right here on the beach. Yeah, I, I don't understand the storyline of the dead body because... It's just supposed to be forgotten people of Hollywood. I I guess. It's just, I, I just found it a really annoying like extra tidbit that I'm just like nobody's addressing this and it's just like it's not meaningful well I think they they needed a corpse at the end of the movie and so they came up with a way to introduce a corpse at the beginning of the movie but we don't need a corpse that we care about yeah, or we don't care about this corpse no but it, well, but yeah, it could have been that's the whole point it could have just been another dead body at the funeral home but then someone would have cared about it we needed a corpse that nobody cared about that's the point okay I don't think it mattered you, you don't think it would have mattered if they delivered an empty coffin to someone else's funeral? No, I don't think it would have mattered which body they switched at the end. I think it would because it needed to be someone that nobody cared about. Otherwise, wow. someone's going to worry where that body went. Let's discuss further when we get there, I suppose. Yeah. One of Cully's hitchhikers, Babs, played by Rosanna Arquette, asks to borrow a bathing suit and failing that asks the cop what the laws are with regard to nude sunbathing. The cop says he'll have to arrest her, but she guesses she could talk him out of it. Just as the cops are leaving, Sally's press agent skids up to the house. Babs decides to do some topless sunbathing after all, while Cully and Coogan meet with Dr. Irving Feingarten. These two girls are also extremely unnecessary characters that... I'm not going to complain about Rosanna Arquette being in no, the movie. I mean, or her boobs. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I'm just like, we're just cramming more and more people into this house and mm -hmm. I'm, for no good reason. Like, I don't feel like they perform any function in the no, story. I think it's just supposed to be like a change of seasons where it's like, no, this is that kind of movie where you just put 13 people in a room and you just can build all these misunderstandings into it instead yeah, of the people that matter Yeah, but it makes the movie the really long and, and, and meandering. Yeah. It's not focused. Babs decides to do some topless sunbathing after all, while Cully and Coogan meet with Dr. Irving Feingarten, as played by Robert Preston, coming down the stairs from having treated Felix. He says Felix is fine, and he's also quick to order a mixed drink from Cully, and then proceeds to inject himself with all sorts of vitamins. Remember the last time we saw a doctor treating himself with injections? 
the uh, Cannonball Run. That's correct. I, I do like the interaction Robert Preston has with uh, Lila. Oh, I'm gonna do it for you. Are you perchance a nurse? No, I used to be a junkie. Would it endanger your amateur standing if I ask you to use a sterilized needle? <laughs> I think that that one made me laugh. <laughs> the phone rings and Cully intercepts. He insists that the so-called suicide attempt was a simple mistake and that a car was accidentally put in drive and drove into the ocean, which technically was a mistake, mm-hmm. but that's not what they're calling about. Yeah. Dr. Irving enlists one of the hitchhikers to inject the medicine into his butt cheeks. Felix wanders through the scene zombified and Ben Coogan follows him into the kitchen. Felix rifles through a cabinet and collects a bunch of rope. Coogan doesn't even notice what Felix is doing because he's preoccupied with trying to put together a cover story for the press. Cully finally hangs up on Felix's agent, Harry Sandler. Coo, that's a nervous Jew. That's not a nervous Jew. This is a nervous Jew. That's funny you don't look nervous. Oh, Irving, if you don't stop it. You get sore. Some of my best friends are nervous. The second hitchhiker, Lila, is asked to answer a ringing doorbell. It's gossip columnist Polly Reed here to see Felix. Lila doesn't know whose house this is and asks Polly to wait, but when she heads back inside, Polly sneaks around the house in through the back door. And yet another character mm-hmm. that I, I guess has slightly more function in the story than yeah. some of these others. I think they just wanted someone that they could hurt a lot and that it would be funny. Yeah, but it's not really funny. I mean, to them it probably was because okay. they were probably taking it out on some gossip columnist that they hate. And so they were just like, let's write her into the script and then just break her legs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this. The, you're right. You're absolutely right. But everything about this film feels very self-indulgent. Yes. Yeah. Totally. There's an interesting line from Robert Preston. Uh, was like, this was like a scene out of that movie I just saw, The Thing, where it was a movie about a horrible monster. And I was like, wait, that isn't out yet. That isn't out yet. Was it? Was it being filmed at this time? Well, he might have been referring to The Thing from Outer Space, which is yeah. what The Thing is sort of a remake of. Because The Thing was '82. Right. But it was it's so close. Yeah. It just seems like a, such an odd reference. Yeah, it is a weird thing for him to say. Upstairs, Felix is throwing a rope over a wooden beam to hang himself. Polly wanders unapologetically into the house and right away asks for confirmation that Felix tried to kill himself. Coogan denies while laughing maniacally when upstairs, Felix loses his balance on a ladder and then falls through the ceiling, landing directly on top of Polly. And we hard cut to hours later. He fell on her. They've taken her to the Santa Monica Hospital. How the hell could he fall on her? He was trying to hang himself. Word spreads quickly what happened, and people seem even more amused that Polly has a fractured pelvis and broken leg because everyone hates her. This was a really well-edited scene because every time it cuts, it, it goes to the opposite person that you're expecting them to be talking to. Yeah. It's a different person than they were talking to. But they're continuing the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We cut to Sally laughing at the same piano when she gets the news of a second attempt and the consequent injuries. A couple on the beach walk past the dog and his dead man and comment on the cute pup without checking for a pulse. Back up in Felix's room, Irving has given him a shot to knock him out for a while, and Lila calls through the hole in the floor asking for dinner. Coogan rushes in from having taken Polly to the hospital to see how Felix is doing, just as Cully is dragging a rug over the hole in the floor. Why? To keep it looking tidy. And to, to create a funny situation yeah. later. Uh, yeah, perfect. well, that that's the only reason I could come up with why you'd put a rug over a hole and not try to block it off in any way. Just like the money pit. Yeah. Coogan is disappointed to hear that Felix will be out of commission for a while. Blackman calls the house and wants straight answers as far as what's going on, and Coogan gets him up to speed. We cut to Polly's hospital room, where she's in traction, 
watching a news story about her own accident. Who was then rushed to the Malibu hospital where she's reported to be in satisfactory condition. Satisfactory? Shit! Her husband arrives and asks how she's doing, so she chews him out for the stupid question. She argues with a nurse for more pain meds and is refused. Polly asks her husband to stop by the house and check on Felix. We cut to Lila and Cully grocery shopping, and Lila is on roller skates, freaking out because she just saw Sam Marshall in the store. She crashes full speed into Cully to tell him before she notices Marshall standing right there. Another character, completely irrelevant. uh, Vaughn's girlfriend and this Marshall character... There's no need for either of them. They they serve no story purpose. Oh, totally. You could you could you could do what he's about to do, which is bring a party to their house. Yeah. Some other way. You didn't right. need another character. Lila could have asked for one, and then they would have a party. Well, I mean, he also serves like the side function of being an actor for another Blackman film, but I don't even know why that's relevant. It's not. Marshall recognizes Cully and says hi, but when Lila tries, she passes out. Cully and Marshall lift her by her limbs and place her in the shopping cart. During their brief chat, Marshall tried to invite Cully to a party tonight, and instead, Cully suggests they host it at Felix's place to cheer him up. We cut back to the beach, where waves toss the dead man around, and the dog stands over him. Do you remember the last time we had a dead man in an ocean in a Malibu house on the beach? Uh, I'm gonna say... It wasn't for the podcast. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Okay. Call Misty for me? No, uh, that was for the podcast. Oh, but that was a dead person on like a Malibu. But he's it talking wasn't Malibu. About, it was he's up, talking about right. Elliot North. Gould in the, the Long Goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, he's not the dead guy. The dead guy was, uh, what's his name from The Godfather? Yeah, um, yeah. Sterling Hayden? Yeah, there you go. The party at Felix's place is already in full swing, and Dr. Irving is amusing himself by lying to other partygoers. So what do you do? I breed armadillos. Oh, you enjoy your work? Not especially. But the armadillos sure get a kick out of it. <laughs> this, this made me laugh. <laughs> Is it profitable? Only in the spiritual sense. A wise man once said, make an armadillo smile and the world is your oyster. At one time, I considered breeding oysters. It just didn't sound right. Make an oyster smile. And the world is your armadillo. You can see the problem. I don't think you can make an oyster smile. I like that one better, though. Make an oyster smile and the world is your armadillo? Yeah. Sure. (laughs) Cully answers the doorbell and it's Capitol Executive Dick Benson, the Hagman character, and Cully directs him upstairs if he'd like to speak with Felix. The next man at the door is Willard, the husband of Polly Reed, here to follow up on her request. How's Felix? Recovering, fortunately. How's Polly? They're recovering, unfortunately. Coogan tries his hand at answering the door and is terrified to find the police there. Turns out they're off the clock and came for the party. The entire party sings happy birthday, but since it's not anybody's birthday, they just say to somebody when they well, get to that part of the song. Well, it's somebody's birthday. <laughs> I mean, Wait, sure. Every day is somebody's birthday. Well, exactly. I, I, do, I do mean so much as like Sam said, hey, we're throwing a birthday party for... S- Someone. But literally no one at the party knows who. Correct, correct. <laughs> Felix hears the dog howling on the beach and mimics him. We cut to Blackman and his girlfriend at a restaurant, and she asks how things are going with Sam Marshall. Blackman thinks Marshall is trying to rip them off. Blackman gets a call at the bar and takes it. It's Benson calling from the party, offering to keep an eye on Felix, and asking what the most they can offer Marshall is for his part in their upcoming film Killing Ground. I guess he's asking for a million and ten percent of the profits, but Blackman says that they can offer up to half a million and 5%, which is exactly half of what Marshall wanted. 
And apparently that's the same as he made on his previous film, which was successful. Benson is rushed off the phone by a strange woman randomly making out with him. Felix stumbles out of bed and wanders through his room until he starts sinking through the floor. He's standing on the rug over the hole in the floor, and downstairs we see his feet descend from the ceiling wrapped in the carpet. Like, slowly, though. Yeah. Like an elevator coming down. <laughs> I really wanted it to gently set him down on the floor and then just unravel around him, like, just yeah. perfectly uh, the right length for that. But instead, it drops him about three feet off the ground, and he just falls into the party. He stands up and marches into the kitchen, where Benson is still making out with the lady. Felix shoves them aside so that he can open the oven, blow out the pilot light, and turn on the gas. Benson and the woman fall to the ground and yank the oven out of the wall, disturbing Felix's third suicide attempt. Blackman's girlfriend calls Marshall at the party and says the real maximum paycheck he should ask for is 750000 but Marshall is distracted at the moment by a topless woman kissing him up and down his chest, mirroring their call earlier. This is the last we get of the Marshall and Vaughn's girlfriend thing in terms of, like, any real plot. After this, we see them a couple times, but it, there's no there's no purpose to this. There's whole, no payoff yeah. to this. Yeah. Walking back through the party, Felix notices one of the cops has left his holster on the bar, and he pulls out the gun. He climbs under the rug that fell through the hole in the floor, prepared to kill himself, but he is suddenly joined by a topless partygoer. We hear kissing sounds, and Felix starts shooting his gun through the ceiling and screaming excitedly, claiming to have solved the problem with the film. Felix busts in on Cully and another party guest having sex and tells him that the solution is to make Nightwind a pornographic film. Benson is on the phone with Blackman, sharing Felix's thoughts, when he accidentally falls through the hole in the floor. He lands on the rug, but there are two people under it. Another female guest is making out with Polly's husband, Willard. Willard's leg appears broken in the incident, the same way his wife's was earlier today. The beach dog rushes into the party and starts barking in Willard's face. In the commotion, Dr. Irving accidentally injects Coogan with his Sleeping Beauty concoction and tucks him in for a long nap. Blackman and a trio of studio executives show up on the lot and enter a soundstage in search of Felix in the middle of the night. I feel like I have completely lost track of who's who at this point. Like, mm-hmm. when by the time that guy got injected, I'm like, I don't even know who you are anymore. Like, Well, he starts <laughs> as Sally's press agent, but then he spends the whole rest of the movie here with felix yeah. talking about how great felix is so maybe he's a press agent for both of them yeah that's because they I'm were thinking. a married couple oh that that kind of makes sense but i just yeah because i just kept getting distracted by like i'm like who's i don't know anybody's motivation here <laughs> but he's the most annoying because he's just constantly panicking and on the yeah. verge of tears but but i like the trio of preston william holden and weber yeah i i, I think that they were the most interesting part of the film eventually yeah but i mean i feel like at this point we're what over an hour in and something like that you yeah. know it's ta- it's taken this long to sort of set up the concept which is the whole point of the film right is how he's trying to fix this movie and i'm like it took us this long to get here like none all of the suicide attempts and all of the the tertiary people running around him you know like chickens with their heads cut off don't mean anything and this whole birthday party scene with like 40 characters that we're supposed to keep track of In the middle of the night, Blackman and a trio of studio executives show up on the lot and enter a soundstage in search of Felix. The set is still dressed how it was at the start of the film, with the castle and gazebo and cannon. They call to Felix and suddenly his voice is coming through the house speakers. Felix emerges from behind a giant jack-in-the-box to tell them the new story of the film. It's depressing and it involves a new traumatic origin story for the character. 
Felix pictures reshoots that would change the lead character Jillian West into a nymphomaniac. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, this whole plot comes from the real-life experience of Blake Edwards when he cast his wife Julie Andrews for a risque part in Darling Lily. But it also reminded me of a couple movies that we've covered already, like Caligula, where hardcore pornographic scenes were spliced into an edited version of the film. Felix is asking for $10 million more, 11 tops for the reshoots, and Blackman is flatly refusing. Blackman tells Felix that if he doesn't make the cuts requested by the studio, that he will see to it that Felix never works again, and jabs a finger in his face. Felix, having completely lost it now, bites Blackman's finger. As Blackman tries to leave, Felix proposes they sell him the film. Since the original budget was $30 million, Blackman asks for that plus distribution costs. Felix counters with $20 million, and he'll let them out of his pay-to-play contract. Blackman requests Felix's 150,000 shares of Capital Studios, but he says that he'll need that money to finish the movie. They settle on $16 million, the contract, and the stock. We cut to the beach the next morning where the dog continues to watch his human float around in the surf. Polly watches another entertainment segment about Felix buying Nightwind from the studio, and how Sally will be furious since half of the money he used was also hers. Felix and Cully are standing at the bar at the beach house, and Felix is trying to sell Cully on this new direction. Cully is not interested and suggests Felix might be insane. This is the, have I ever lied to you? It's like, yes, many times. (laughs) I have lied to you. But now that I've confessed to lying, you know I must be an honest man. (laughs) Sally wanders in completely ballistic and starts throwing things at Felix, for blowing $16 million of their money on this half-baked scheme. Felix gives a rousing speech on how the film can work, but unfortunately, it wakes Coogan upstairs, who crawls to the hole in the floor and vomits down on Felix's head, much to Sally's horror. We cut to a screening room, where all the creatives watch the Polly Doodle sequence again. Felix tells them how he wants to change the scene to erotic symbolism, and even with some costume changes and new music, I don't understand how reusing the same set could possibly cost $10 million more. (laughs) Felix has to really push the costume designer, Agnes, to take things as far as possible, because she can't even envision Sally accepting a role like this. She finally agrees to come up with something. Sally meets with her team again for strategies on getting her $8 million back in court, But surprisingly, her agent, who earlier in the film wouldn't let her get divorced, is suddenly totally cool with Sally whipping her tits out in this film. Sally admits that she's not 100% against doing the scene how Felix wants if it isn't for cheap effect. Suing Felix might cost her more money than it's worth, but if she does the film, and it pays for itself, she gets her $8 back no problem. As the butler walks Sally's legal team back to their cars, he lets them know that he spoke with an attorney who assured him that Sally's $8 million court case would be open and shut, quite simple and inexpensive. The butler Gary also points out that Sally's attorney, Herb, works for a firm owned by Capital Studios, which represents a conflict of interest. When they realize how well-informed Gary is, Sally's agent Ava pulls him aside to offer him a position at her agency. She invites him to a party with Mr. Blackman later in the week. Do we find it creepy at all? Because obviously Sally is protesting somewhat because she's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with the concept of doing this. Mm -hmm. And since this is based on a real life story, do we... Did she protest it in real life? I don't think so. I think that's... that's You think that part's fabricated? (laughs) I don't think they were on the verge of divorce and that he was killing himself a bunch of times. Well, yeah, I guess that's fair. But I don't know. At the same time, I'm like... "Mm." I also believe that maybe she wasn't comfortable with doing a nude scene. That's possible. We cut to Blackman's office where he's now wearing a cast on his middle finger where Felix bit him. 
so his middle finger is permanently raised. Studio head JG calls to ask about Nightwind, since it's getting so much publicity on account of the new pornographic angle. He thinks it's liable to make 100 or 200 million, and suggests that they at least offer to distribute. Back on the beach, the police have finally found the dead man, and the dog is guarding it viciously. It turns out, the dead man is a forgotten character actor named Burgess Webster, who gets his own little entertainment segment. Burgess Webster is best remembered for his outstanding performance as Uncle Fudd in Mississippi Mud. This morning on stage 15 at Capitol Studio, the entire company of Felix Farmer's controversial new film, Nightwind, observed a minute of silence in memory of the famous actor. In the same broadcast, the anchor mentions that Nightwind resumed shooting today. We cut to Polly's hospital bed, which is so recently vacated that the handle her leg was draped over is still swinging above her mattress. We cut to the set from the Polly Wally Doodle sequence, and now everyone is in bondage outfits, and the cannon seems more symbolic than it did before. Sally, in a red nightie, wanders past all manner of dancers in erotic outfits. At the end of the stage, there's a giant facade of a devil face with an open mouth doorway, but Sally freaks out and runs off stage instead of moving through it. An ambulance pulls up to the studio, and Polly is unloaded outside the soundstage where reshoots are taking place. A guard outside soundstage 15 refuses to let her in. Do you know who I am? Yeah. You're somebody who's making a big mistake if you think you're going to get on this stage without a pass. None of this is relevant. No. We cut back to Sally having a panic attack in the dressing room as everyone pleads with her to do the scene, but she is vehemently refusing. Coogan, Felix, and Cully start rattling off huge name actresses who've done nude scenes in an effort to convince her. While Polly continues shouting at the set guard, Dr. Irving walks up and is allowed right inside. You're gonna let that shyster in? I could sue you for calling me that, Polly. A shyster is a disreputable lawyer. I'm a quack. Lastly, David Blackman shows up, and Polly tells Blackman about the guard that won't let her in. Even after he introduces himself as the president of the studio, the guard, who introduces himself as Harrigan, Harold P., refuses to move from the doorway. Blackman somehow instantly forgets the name he was just told. Harrigan. Harold P. All right, Mr. Harrigan. Harold B. I'm going to remember you. Because he already didn't remember him. Yeah, I get it. It's still not funny. No, it's not funny at all. He makes the same threat to Harrigan that he did to Felix and even points his uninjured middle finger in the man's face, but thinks twice and pulls it back before Harrigan can bite it. I did like that moment. Where, like at the last second, he's like, what if everyone's crazy now? Back in the dressing room, Dr. Irving is asked to give Sally an injection. Felix asks if she can work after the injection, but Irving says that they only asked him to solve her anxiety and he can't make any promises. Very quickly, Sally is in a silly mood. <laughs> I've got to show my boobies. <laughs> What do you think, Irving? You've seen my boobies. Mm, are they worth showing? He tells her her knockers are terrific, and she's excited. Felix tries to clear the set for her to have some privacy, but she insists it's not necessary anymore. Polly is finally wheeled onto the set and waves to get Sally's attention. Oh, hi, Polly. Come to see my boobies? When they begin shooting again, Sally moves through the devil's mouth into a room filled with fog. Suddenly, she's in a spotlight in a completely black room, joined only by her reflection. Another man appears all over the place, holding his hat over his crotch. She moves through a house of mirrors with five other Sallys looking around, and the strange man approaches her, but she holds up a hand to stop him. Then she rips off her top, revealing her breasts, and when the take is over, the crew goes wild. The EMTs who brought Polly here and stood her up to watch the take are so distracted with their clapping that they drop Polly on her face, and her cast is destroyed when she hits the ground. 
Sally takes a big bow for everyone and then collapses to the floor, possibly unconscious. We cut to Blackman's bedroom, where he's with his girlfriend again, but a phone call comes in from JG. Blackman takes the call and it's revealed that he's wearing women's lingerie. JG wants to know if they've locked in that distribution deal yet, because the word is that this movie's going to be huge. After he hangs up with JG, he calls Eva Brown, who is currently in bed with her own girlfriend, to verify everything is going according to plan. Eva calls Gary to check on his progress, and apparently the plan is for Gary to talk Sally into making a deal with Capital to distribute Nightwind, since she owns half the film as well. Gary brings Sally some tea in bed and advises her to protect her investment by reaching out to the studio to distribute. He tells her to call Eva Brown for studio suggestions. I feel like we could have short-circuited all of this crap. Yeah. Just like have the have just have Blackman call Sally. Like just yeah. be be done with it. We cut to another screening room where people are watching the new cut of the film. Right at the film's climax, three more people enter the small screening room, and as the lights come up, Felix is furious to see Blackman and his goons are here. They inform him that they are the distributor of his film. Felix refuses to allow Blackman to make changes and runs screaming from the screening room. Not the screaming room. <laughs> the screening room. I've often made that mistake. Ah! <laughs> Not in here, ma'am. <laughs> no, I really liked it. <laughs> I sometimes go into our screaming room at work and just, yeah. just, just vent. One time I accidentally screened a movie in the screaming room. <laughs> Was it Scream? <laughs> yeah. I screamed a movie. I screamed the whole movie. <laughs> I have it memorized. <laughs> and by scream, I mean 1981's scream. Oh. <laughs> Felix steals a Clinette Series 1 belonging to one of the Capitol executives and races it off the lot. That's a car, by the way. That's a car. 275,000. Might want to hang on to that one. When he crashes through the gate, he misses a stuntman playing a guard by mere inches. It's a really insane stunt. I had to back it up and rewatch it a couple times because there's two guards standing in the middle of the entryway and they dive in opposite directions, but one guy's like his foot slipped or something mm -hmm. and he barely scrapes himself oh, out of the geez. way of this car. He takes this fancy car onto the freeway and draws the attention of a police car. It looks like he's on the 118 now. Oh yeah, it's definitely the 118. Yeah. Felix's crazy driving sends many cars flipping over each other, and when a log truck dumps a bunch of lumber in the road, the police cruiser ramps off of it. Suddenly, the car is in Beverly Hills, and Felix drives it straight through a wall into his wife's kitchen. It, it seems so out of place to, like, suddenly have all these car stunts. I'm like, this seems weirdly elaborate for the this The tone film. is all over the place, because it starts as, like, this really silly, like, too many people in a house movie, yeah. and then it turns into this, like, action set piece and then the end tries to be heartwarming and i don't think it works at all no. yeah. it almost seems like the movie would have been better had it just been people coming in and out of this house yeah like have it almost be like a stage play of all these different characters in this guy's life while he's trying to kill himself in the background while they're trying to get the movie made that's a movie i would have i would have sat through yeah it, it would be it's kind of the same problems that we had with seems like old times where we were like this didn't need to take place over the course of a week mm -hmm. yeah. this could have been one night in one house yeah as the car comes through the kitchen wall, this is the last straw for the chef, who takes his butcher knife to the car repeatedly. Inside his house, Felix's children surprise him with a squirt gun, and he takes it. The police swarm the house, and Felix steals a Rolls Royce to leave in. I think he asks where his wife is, and there's a, she's in Rangoon. Which Rangoon? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the last time we brought up Rangoon? Somebody went to the University of Rangoon? I don't oh. remember. Was it in... Charlie Chan? No. No, it's a movie you said already. Oh, that I said today? Yeah. Oh, 
Cannonball Run? Cannonball Run. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. What? That's where the doctor went. That's where he the, the doctor he went, to, went. He got his doctorate oh. at the University of Rangoon. I wasn't even thinking about that as like an actual city, like <laughs> in Burma or yeah. Myanmar or wherever. <laughs> but it's a. Uh, because when he said that, of course, I was thinking about the food. <laughs> I'm like, of course the doctor referenced that. Felix drives his wife's stolen car across town and parks outside a post house. On his way into the building, he encounters Harold P. Harrigan again. Apparently, Cully got him a new job already. Felix says he's late for a very important date, and Harrigan incorrectly attributes the line to Alice in Wonderland's March Hare, when I believe it's spoken by the White Rabbit. Unless they both say it? No, it's the White Rabbit. No, it's the White Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. Felix rushes into the office of Mr. Lipschitz and puts the squirt gun to his head. I'm a desperate man, Mr. Lipschitz. If every reel of my negative is not in this office in ten minutes, I'm going to blow your brains out. Harrigan sees Felix is getting a ticket outside and then turns to notice Felix walking Lipschitz out at gunpoint with the reels of his film on a rolling cart. Harrigan doesn't care about the gun and tries to talk Felix down. The police arrive on the scene, and before Harrigan can stop them, Felix points his squirt gun at them, and the police shoot him back until he dies. <laughs> to be fair, the squirt gun is, like, all black. Like, right. it doesn't yeah. look like a squirt gun. Yeah, it looks like an early 80s squirt gun. Yeah. Oh, I just watched, uh, rewatched Cloak and Dagger with oh, my okay. niece. Yeah. Because she'd never seen it. And, and she's, like, seeing, like, there's a scene where Henry Thomas is just walking around the street with this really authentic looking gun squirt gun yeah and she's like what the hell it's like i was like it's the 80s yeah <laughs> kids had realistic looking squirt guns and the way you would fill them is there would be a mag that slid out of the handle and little bullets that you fill with water <laughs> like a pez dispenser felix falls backward knocking the reels of his film to the ground but they're the negatives and they're unrolling and he's like laying on them and folding them yeah i thought for sure that that was going to be some kind of plot point yeah but i mean even they would survive I, I, that but it would mess it up a little bit for sure but i guess the implication that he actually does have every reel of the film seems hard to believe because if they've been cutting and recutting and recutting there's bins of films yeah somewhere. this isn't all the negative this is just the negative yeah. of the cut of yeah. his current cut well and there's prints somewhere as well you, right. ha- you have all all the print distributed prints yeah so there are positive prints yeah are you sure positive I'm interpositive. Well, I'm getting really fancy now. (laughs) Felix realizes that his movie will make even more money on account of its deceased director. This could mean another 10 million at the box office. We cut across town to a bar where Cully, Coogan, and Irving are having a drink in Felix's memory. Coogan gets the chance to spell out and explain the film's title. Bullshit. I mean, S-O-B. Standard operational bullshit. They kill the poor sweet son of a bitch and then they give him a send-off like he's some kind of a saint. Apparently the Spanish version of the film is yeah. also called SOB, but it stands for Sui Honrados Bandidos, which means you are honest crooks. Huh. I At this point I'm like, okay, cool. We're almost done with this movie. And then I looked at the runtime. Right, yeah. There's you, you expect credits to roll after f- this scene. There's like 30 more minutes left of this movie. Yeah. This is already denouement and we're going to keep going for another half hour. The three men make a drunken plan, and they head to Orion Funeral Home. As they break into the building after hours, the camera floats through the upstairs window of the funeral home operator's bedroom, and we learn that Felix's funeral is to be held tomorrow on stage 15, the same one where they did the reshoots, 
We also learn that the new cut of the film has hit theaters the day before his funeral to record box office numbers. We're learning this from a broadcast on the television yeah. in the apartment. But between him grabbing all that negative and like what has to be a week maybe at, at most they finished cutting made all the prints and distributed them across the country apparently already. i mean across the country is only 800 theaters at the time but still i don't believe that yeah no not possible um now did i miss something in the bar i don't know what the hell they're doing here no they don't say what their plan is okay but also even after they execute their plan. I don't know what they're doing here. <laughs> oh, well, uh, we'll explain that. Okay. I get that part. Inside the funeral home, they start peeking through coffins and locate Burgess Webster, the beach body. Cully is sad that Webster won't get a proper burial after his decent career as an actor. Next, they locate Felix and lift him out of his coffin. They decide on a whim to put Burgess in Felix's coffin so that he gets the funeral he deserves, but they're going to take Felix. What do you mean he's not going to get a proper funeral? He uh, doesn't have any money. He's a retired actor that nobody cared about. Yeah. Uh, they said that he's going to be put in like Potter's Field. A, a Potter's Field. Oh, okay. Like like nobody's nobody cares enough to have bought him a plot that yeah. like right. nobody's going to come to his funeral, but they want somebody to celebrate it. Okay. Which I is understand. why at the beginning of the film, we needed to establish that this is a person who no one gives a shit about. And that it, it's sad that no one gives a shit about him because he had this career and he contributed to this industry, but no one cares about this guy, so no one's going to notice if his body disappears from this funeral home. Got it. Back by the entrance, Coogan is so drunk that he's pissing himself. Upstairs, the man who owns the funeral home brags to his wife about all the publicity tomorrow's funeral will bring and that they can probably raise their prices. Out front, the guys prop Felix's body up in the backseat of Cully's convertible. Apparently, this whole scene is a takeoff of a real-life incident where director Raoul Walsh borrowed John Barrymore's corpse after his funeral and then propped it up in a chair to scare Errol Flynn with. <laughs> what? <laughs> the story was confirmed recently by his granddaughter, Drew Barrymore, in a recent episode what? of YouTube series Hot Ones. Uh, what? Okay. Is it true that your grandfather's body was stolen from the morgue by W.C. Fields, Errol Flynn, and Sadakachi Hartman so that they could prop him up against a poker table and throw one last party with the guy? Not only yes, uh, but there have been, like, cinematic interpretations of that. Um, a Blake Edwards film called SOB that's just brilliant and fun to watch no matter what. And then... I've heard things about Weekend at Bernie's. I can't know ever if that's even true. But yes, they did. And I will say this. I hope my friends do the same for me. Driving down the road, the car stalls and cops pull up beside them. Felix's corpse is now wearing glasses and Dr. Irving advises Coogan to pretend that they are chatting and to nod Felix's head so we get a little Weekend at Bernie's <laughs> moment. Cully tells the cops that the engine is flooded, but they should be fine, and the cops leave, at which point Coogan confesses that he has also shit himself, in addition to pissing himself. We cut to the guys playing cards around a table in Felix's beach house. Coogan misses Felix and kisses his body, but Dr. Irving reminds him that the body is just something that Felix walked around in, but the man is gone. The next morning, the couple at the funeral home realize that Felix's body is gone, but decide to go along with Burgess's body in the box to avoid the terrible publicity of losing such a high-profile celebrity corpse. We cut down to Marina Del Rey as the three grave robbers set sail on board the Tinkerbell, a yacht presumably named after Sally's co-star in whatever Peter Pan movie she starred in. Okay, so back to what their plan is here. Like, 
they're trying to give him a proper burial. I get that part, I guess, this this sort of send-off on the boat part, but they also just hung out with him at a poker table mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't They under- missed the guy. It was like a wake. Yeah. I guess. They call it a wake when they're, when they're having the card game. I don't know. It's a little weird. It, it is. But it's but also a thing, and people usually do it, like, with the body in the room for the wake. Well, I know I know what a wake is, yeah. like, but it's usually like you invite everybody and the, the casket is sitting open at the funeral home. It's not you pull the body out and play poker with it. <laughs> Sometimes it is. <laughs> Every once in a while. Felix is sitting in a chair on the deck of the ship with a Viking cap with horns. Apparently it's a prop from a movie Felix worked on. At Felix's funeral, a man with long gray hair and a huge gray beard takes the stage. This is Professor Krishna Mansa Kasari, played by Larry Storch, who appeared in Photograph as part of last night's news story about the upcoming funeral. He's a guru and spiritual advisor to Sally. In place of a eulogy, he reads directly from Variety's front page that Nightwind has made an estimated $200 million in the box office. He introduces Sally to Sing, and we cross-cut from her performance to the guys dumping gasoline over Felix's body in a dinghy and then setting him aflame and pushing him out to sea for a proper Viking burial. Ironically, Mulligan, of these four actors, died last. The other three were all dead by the end of the 80s and their 60s, and Mulligan survived till September of 2000. So he outlived all these guys who were giving him a funeral. Well, yeah, because we've mentioned a couple times that William Holden... He passed away, yeah, not long after this. We'll, We'll cover that again here. From the beach, we watch smoke rise from Felix's funeral vessel, and we get a closing scroll... And so, just as Felix had predicted, Nightwind became the biggest money-making film in motion picture history, and Sally won another Academy Award. And the people who ran the studio made a ton of money, and they all lived happily ever after. Until the next movie. The end. Do you think that sign-off is like, they lived happily ever after until the next movie, or... They lived happily ever after until the next movie, like 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 saying goodbye. I, I think it's the former. Okay. Yeah, I think the, I think it's more like they lost a shit ton the next movie. All right. Yeah. But Felix managed to keep his streak alive because at the beginning they say he never lost money for the studio, mm-hmm. and he turned this one around so that it was the highest grossing film ever. So. Yeah. But yeah, um, the pacing is really weird. It's pretty awful. And my my problem is mostly with the third act that they turn it around and try and make it like this touching drama where you're supposed to suddenly relate to these characters on a really real level where they've been caricatures the whole time. And it just comes across as very forced and and awkward. Like they're they're loving and caring to this guy who at the beginning of the film they didn't even notice was trying to kill himself repeatedly. They feel like the big chill at the end where in the beginning they're just like... You know, it's what's up, Doc. Everybody's just crashing into each other, and it's all silly nonsense. Yeah. It's like too many movies in one movie. Yeah. But none of them are a complete movie. Right. It's it's all it's all a part of some other story. And and I get what that this is supposed to be like, his experiences, but that's exactly what it, it feels like. It just feels like this is this experience, and then the next scene is this experience, but they yeah. don't relate yeah. to each other. I, yeah. I feel like that often happens with, with things based on real-life experiences. It's like, but no, but this is actually what happened. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't mean it makes a good movie. You have to create a you know, cohesive story out of it. Right. That, you know, and this was not that. Yeah, like, there's, no, there's no arcs. I mean, I guess there's maybe like I, I guess maybe Felix has an arc. Yeah. Like, Does he? Like, well, he comes I, back. Yeah. Like he. I don't he, think he has an arc. I think he has a turn. 
Yeah. I don't, I don't think he, like, he doesn't change as a person. He just, he, he, he breaks he, out of his depression. Yeah. He returns to who he was as a yeah, person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, I love the Robert Preston stuff. Like, everything with Dr. Irving is fucking hilarious. Robert Preston is a treasure, was a treasure. And all, all of, all, I, I feel like, because Blake Edwards had worked with him a lot. Right. And, and so he's like, he knows how to write for him to speak. Um, but he just knocks every line out of the park. Yeah. His delivery is so wonderful. But probably my favorite scene is Felix trying to talk Robert Vaughn into the new script and ma- maniacally singing and then negotiating to buy back that film. Was like, and biting his hand. <laughs> yeah. like, like, like that whole scene was great. Um, but... Uh, if you can ignore the fact that this set would have been disassembled already. Yeah, the movie's yeah. in theaters. Exactly. <laughs> they wouldn't be wasting a whole stage on on just storing this equipment. But yeah, there's so many little aspects of this movie that, that I feel like I said earlier that it should have... I would have been more entertained by a movie that just all took place in this house. All, all these things could still happen. Yeah. But they happen within the breath of this house in one day to show how crazy this industry is. I also don't think that there that there's any way you get Julie Andrews to be in this movie if her husband didn't write and direct it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think her agents would let her do this movie if she didn't write or direct it. Not because of the boobs, but because of just the meanderingness of everything. It's just like what is this? Just like she was you complaining. Right. She's she's barely in the film. She they made Felix Farmer the main character and he dies an hour into the movie. Like who is the main character of this movie? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Well, yeah, and he 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 barely actually does anything. He doesn't right. he doesn't have any he doesn't have autonomy a word really for the first forty five minutes until until the point at which he buys his movie back. Yeah, it's very weird. So thumbs down for me. I think it's a thumbs down for me too. I really love this cast, and I feel yeah. bad saying it's a thumbs down, but it's it's a reluctant thumbs down for me. Oh yeah, I agree with the, the cast is great, and there are moments that I that I laughed at and enjoyed, but as a movie, no thanks. Yeah, it's it's a thumbs down f- for me. Although I'm not sorry that I saw it. I I, I there were a lot of parts that I that I was like okay, and I kept thinking is it'll get better. <laughs> And and then like it just kept becoming other things. It just got weirder. But don't you find that that sometimes worse when a movie had potential and then disappointed than if it was just bad all along? I, yeah, yeah. I I think that the cast is what kept me going. Right. And because you're like, it's got William Holden and Robert Preston making jokes with each other. Like, yeah. This has to be good, right? What are we thinking, Letterboxed? Uh, I did not have it super favorable. I'm having a hard time placing it. Yeah. It's probably going to be higher than I really want it to be. <laughs> Jess, what do you think? Uh, so I have it at 69 out of 88. Okay. It is below just a gigolo, but above four seasons. Richard, what are you thinking? All right. Well, I think I'm going to rest it at 35. Wow, that uh, is high. Yeah. Um, it's going to put it below Nighthawks, but above American Pop. All right. Um, I have it in 64th out of 88 which is just under image of the beast and just above savage harvest because i really like image of the beast but that's my own personal problem our writer director was blake edwards he's the husband of star julie andrews he's the creator and regular director of the peter gunn series and the director of breakfast at tiffany's the pink panther and sequels the peter gunn feature called gun 10 sob victor victoria a movie called Sunset that I've been meaning to check out. It's a post-Tombstone look at the later life of Wyatt Earp. 
and his work as a technical advisor on early Western films, but then he and the actor playing him in the epic Western are distracted with an investigation into a murder at the first annual Academy Awards. Okay. That sounds awesome, right? In 1984, when he took his name off of City Heat as the writer, he chose for a pseudonym Sam O. Brown for its initials, S.O.B., the music here is from Henry Mancini. He's a longtime Edwards collaborator. He wrote the Peter Gunn theme, the Pink Panther theme. We heard a bit of the Gunn theme in Blues Brothers last year. He also scored Little Miss Marker, A Change of Seasons, and Backroads for us. And he's back this season scoring Condor Man and Mommy Dearest before teaming up with Edwards again for Victor Victoria next season. He later scored Santa Claus the Movie, Life Force, Sunset, and Ghost Dad. Now, Life Force, the soundtrack is amazing. Yeah. Cinematographer Harry Stradling Jr., he was a DP of Dirty Dingus McGee, Little Big Man, Rooster Cogburn, Damnation Alley, and we've seen his work in Carney and Up the Academy. He returns later this season, lighting The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper and Buddy Buddy. Editor Ralph E. Winters, he cut Gaslight, Kiss Me Kate, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Jailhouse Rock, Ben-Hur, Butterfield 8, and then a whole bunch of stuff for Blake Edwards, including several Pink Panther movies, 10 Victor Victoria, He's also cut the original Thomas Crown Affair, the 76 King Kong, Orca, and the American Success Company, which we covered with a mini-sode last year. Julie Andrews is Sally Miles. She's Maria in The Sound of Music. She's Mary Poppins in Mary Poppins. She's also Victoria Grant in Victor Victoria, directed by her husband, writer-director Blake Edwards. She also plays Queen Rivaldi in The Princess Diaries. She voices a queen in Shrek, opposite a king, voiced by John Cleese. And she is currently the voice of Gru's mother in the Despicable Me films and the Minion films. I didn't know that. Yeah. William Holden played Tim Cully at the end of The Wild Bunch as Strother Martin and the Bounty Hunters are taking Holden away. They begin singing Polly Wally Doodle. He plays J.J. Sefton in Stalag 17. He's Joe Gillis in Sunset Boulevard, Max Schumacher in Network. We've seen him in When Time Ran Out and The Earthling, and together these three films would be his final three film credits. He died just four months after the release of S.O.B. He was drinking heavily at home and fell, cutting his head and blood out. Marissa Berenson played Mavis. She was Natalia Landauer in Cabaret, which took second place in our Patreon poll last month. She's also Lady Linden in Barry Linden. Who's Mavis? Is that the girlfriend of Robert Vaughn's character? I guess. Larry Hagman played Dick Benson. He plays a major in Superman. He was J.R., who shot J.R. Ewing on Dallas, and he reprised the role for the recent Dallas reboot. Robert Loja played Herb Maskowitz. He was McMillan in Big. That's the boss. He's General Gray in Independence Day. He's Frank in Scarface, and we saw him last year as Dr. Benish in The Ninth Configuration. Or was the was it an orange juice commercial? Oh, a Minute Maid or something like that? Who would you believe? Robert Loja? (laughs) Drink your juice. I always go to him. I think it was Family Guy where he's spelling his name. Yeah. R (laughs) as in Robert Loja. O as in, oh, look, it's Robert Loja. (laughs) B as in, by God, that's Robert Loja. Richard Mulligan played Felix Farmer. He was General Custer in Little Big Man. He voiced Einstein in Oliver and Company. And he was Dr. Harry Weston in 170 episodes of Empty Nest. Robert Preston played Dr. Irving Feingarten. He was Harold Hill in The Music Man and Centauri in The Last Starfighter. Those are his two huge roles. Yeah. What a documentary of Victor Victoria? 
Sure, he's in there too. <laughs> Loretta Swit played Polly Reed. She was Hot Lips on the MASH TV series, which is why it's okay to smash her and break her legs and stuff, because that's what we do to Hot Lips characters. Uh. Robert Vaughn played David Blackman. He was intended to be a stand-in for Paramount head Robert Evans, I think, obviously. He had an early appearance in The Ten Commandments. He's Lee in The Magnificent Seven. He was Napoleon Solo in 105 episodes of The Man from Uncle. So far on the show, we've covered his work with Hangar 18, Virus Day of Resurrection, and Battle Beyond the Stars. Yeah, he, his Battle Beyond the Stars character is very similar yeah. to his Magnificent Seven character. Obviously, the movie is a... Yeah, they find him on costco planet <laughs> it's called like coast costco or something like that i was told that there would be many on Las costa you're a little late he shows up later in superman 3 chud 2 basketball and pootie tang robert weber was ben coogan he's colonel thornbush in private benjamin last season he's also juror 12 of the 12 angry men and general denton in the dirty dozen so he's in a couple 12 movies Shelley Winters played Eva Brown, obviously a reference to Mrs. Hitler, Eva Braun, but also meant as a stand-in for the famous entertainment agent Sue Mengers. She was Ruby in Alfie, she was Belle Rosen in The Poseidon Adventure, Mommy in Cleopatra Jones, Faye Lipinski in Next Stop Greenwich Village, Tilly Turner, wife of Houston's character in Tentacles, and the housekeeper in The Visitor with Houston again from the same writer. She's also Nana Marie in Roseanne which is one of their grandmothers. Yeah, the great-grandmother. Right. Uh, I always thought it was one of But she'll always be uh, Ma Gogan from Pete's Dragon. For me. Oh, okay. Speaking of Roseanne, Rosanna Arquette played Babs of the Arquette Arquettes. She's the oldest sibling of Richmond, Alexis, David, and Patricia. She's the former sister-in-law of Nicolas Cage and Thomas Jane through Patricia and Courtney Cox through David. She showed up last year in Gorp as Judy, She's in Desperately Seeking Susan, Silverado, Black Rainbow. She's the one looking for a little black medical book in Pulp Fiction, and she's one of two Wendy Balsams in Buffalo 66. I didn't even recognize her in this. Yeah. I, she, she's so young. This but... is one of her first roles, if not her first role. Yeah, I just, she just, I, like, after I saw her name in the credits, I'm like, oh yeah, that that is her, but yeah. she just, she doesn't look like herself yet. <laughs> Though she was dating Steve Porcaro, keyboardist for Toto, when they released their song Rosanna, the song was written by David Page, and the band admits it was never actually about her. They just played along with the rumor for a while. What? Really? Yeah. I always believed that it was about they her. They said it was for a while, and then they admitted that it was just a coincidence, but they thought it was funny that people kept asking. Oh, okay. John Plachette played Capitol Studios' vice president. His cousin, Suzanne Plachette, played the mom in Oh God Book 2 last season. He played a director in Rocky II, and he was Richard Avery for 77 episodes of Knott's Landing. John Lawler played Capitol Studios' manager. He was a second unit director on Excalibur and Highlander. Most recently, he portrayed Elmer Noland in Godless, that Netflix miniseries with Merritt Weaver and Jeff Daniels about the western town oh, full of women after the mine That one was pretty in. good. Whatever happened to that? Did it not get renewed? I don't think it was even up for a second season. I think it was like a miniseries, basically. Oh, it was, but it was good. It was good. Ken Swoford played Harold Harrigan. He was Weasel in Annie and a major in Thelma and Louise. Hamilton Camp played Mr. Lipschitz. He was Meteor Burt in Joe Dirt. We've seen him so far in Roadie and All Night Long. He's back next season as Hauptman in Evil Speak. He voiced Barney Rubble on the Flintstone Kids TV series in the 80s. And he was Greedy Smurf on The Smurfs and Fenton Crackshell on DuckTales. Uh, he also played Guy with Ears Like Little Raisins on The Tick. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I just love that character <laughs> Best name, name ever. 
Paul Stewart played Harry Sandler. That's Felix's agent. He played Raymond in Citizen Kane. He was Jensen in In Cold Blood. He's Captain Doc Kaiser in 12 O'Clock High. He's back later this season as Dr. Seagal in Nobody's Perfect. But most importantly, he portrayed Dr. Carl Steubens of the Steubens and Marlowe duo in the MacGyver pilot. Benson Fong played the chef. He was Tommy Chan, one of Charlie Chan's sons in a few of those films. Larry Storch played the guru. He was the Boy Scout leader in Without Warning last season. That's the guy who's like, they were a, a bean, a bean uh, harvesting tribe. <laughs> He's best known for F Troop. Yeah. David Young played Sam Marshall. He was a pilot in High Risk earlier this season. Byron Kane played funeral home owner. He was an associate producer of Peter Gunn and a recurring character Barney on the series. Virginia Gregg played the funeral home owner's wife. She was the voice of Norma Bates in Psychos 2 and 3. I'm assuming in his head. <laughs> Herb Tanney played Burgess Webster. He's a regular Blake Edwards actor in several Pink Panthers, Victor Victoria, 10, this, 17 Edwards films in total. He was not an actor, but a doctor, Blake Edwards' personal doctor. And he also shows up in a couple non-Edwards films. For example, Ghosts Can't Do It. <laughs> Terrific movie. Joe Penny played Officer Phil Buckwald. He played Speed in the TV movie adaptation of Mother Jugs and Speed. Erica Yawn played Agnes, the costume designer. She's the voice of Mama Mouskowitz in An American Tale. She's also Madame Ruby, the psychic in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and a governess in The Godfather Part Two. Colleen Brennan, no relation to Eileen Brennan, I checked, is Tammy Taylor. That's the woman who's reading the entertainment news. As far as I could tell, she's not related to Eileen Brennan, though, even though they do spell their last names the same. Most of her credits, based on the titles alone, seem pornographic in nature. Gene Nelson played Clive Lytell. He was Will Parker in Oklahoma, Steve Lacey in Crime Wave, and he also directed the Elvis film Kissin' Cousins. Most of his credits are for 60s and 70s television directing, and this was his last credit. I don't even remember who Clive was. Me neither. Charles Lampkin played Butler. He was Pops in Cocoon, and he's back later this season as Justice Josiah Clues in First Monday in October. Pat Colbert played The Nurse. She was Allison Parker in Leonard Part 6. Corbin Burnson played a surfer on the beach. I'm yeah. assuming one of the guys that pulled him out of the car. He's Harlan Dexter in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He's Roger Dorn in Major League. He's Henry Spencer in Psych. And for whatever reason, I always think of Henry Shalek, which is the Missouri senator that he played on the West Wing. Len Lawson played Boy's Vice Principal in War Games. We've seen him earlier in Cheech and Chong's next movie, In God We Trust, First Family, and All Night Long. Shelby Leverington, she played Marilyn Gardner in Cloak and Dagger. She was Annie Ralston in The Long Riders last year. Giselle Lindley played the princess in The Forbidden Zone last year. Who Are are these all just party guests? Who are these I guess, people? yeah. It, they don't have names next to them, so uh. they're just the actor names. Charles Parks previously appeared in 1980's On the Nickel and The Exorcist II The Heretic, but for whatever reason, neither character has a name on IMDb, same as this film. Bora Silver played theater manager in our next film, Escape from New York. Bora? Bora Silver. Bora. Yeah, that's a... Uh, I, I used to work with somebody named Bora. It was like Korean for the color purple. Oh, interesting. Noelle Toy played Mrs. O'Toole in Big Trouble in Little China. That's the lady where he's like, tells her he wants a girl with green eyes. And he's all... He's in his nerd mode when Kurt mm. Russell's in nerd mode. Robert Ayers plays Guy at Party, uncredited. And he played Ulysses S. Grant in Time Cop. <laughs> I just <laughs> had to include that credit because it's so fun. I think that's everything we have for SOB. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. 
You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Escape from New York, which IMDb describes like so. In 1997, when the U.S. president crashes into Manhattan, now a giant maximum security prison, a convicted bank robber is sent in to rescue him. We leave you now with a trailer for Escape from New York. 1988. The crime rate in the United States rises 400%. 1991. The United States police force is formed. 1997. New York City is a walled maximum security prison. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Kurt Russell. Van Cleef, Ernest Borgnine, Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Season Hubley, Harry Dean Stanton as Brain. Adrian Barbeau as Maggie. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The ultimate adventure of escape and survival.